And that's what I think would be really powerful is if we can create more of those systems where it's self-discovery more so than, well, here's your five sets of five. Here's your, you know, VBTs. Here's your, because those are going to go up in time, you know, but like just put an environment where they can actually, so they can have actualization within themselves and self-discovery so that they can get better. Not necessarily like, oh man, because I assure you this, when I saw squat numbers go up, when I saw force plate numbers go up, I did not see wins go up <laughs> like that. And if that's the, what's ha- what's most important at the end of the day, then, you know, that's what we're trying to do here. That was Corey Schlesinger, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology, from force plates to timing systems to muscle stimulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the Freelap Timing System and K-Box, or coaches' favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the Muscle Lab Contact Grid, which is an extremely affordable and portable step-by-step, literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of collecting of data collecting strips, the Contact Grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms, and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills, rather than uh, being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 max. Think of the VO2 Master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 Master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous, so check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Welcome to another episode of the show. I know you've probably, if you've been following this show, you've probably caught a couple of the Q&As that I've put on, and I decided it's time to not just do them myself because, well, I mean, I enjoy answering questions, but in addition to having to kind of check and make sure I'm not double or triple covering an old question, I just thought it'd be more fun to get more minds involved in this segment of the show. And I always enjoy, whether it be an episode with uh, three people or four, I, generally speaking, the more the more people in the conversation, it's always a good thing. And and also, I just love talking to Corey. <laughs> um, so I wanted to get him involved on the, the Q&A here. Uh, just a quick background too, for those of you guys who aren't too familiar with Corey and his work, he is the head strength and conditioning coach for the Phoenix Suns. He spent the last or the previous three years as the head of basketball athletic performance for Stanford University. He was involved at a couple uh, D1 schools before that. He's also trained pro athletes, Olympians, and is just overall a, a coach and is overall a coach who uh, is incredibly creative, but also is incredibly practical and athlete-centered in the way that he views the training of the athlete. 
Corey's a guy who not only has a great mind for the strength element of things, but also played basketball on the college level and is continually uh, looking at a wider or a more zoomed out view of what what training athletes means in context of becoming a better player. So for the show, we took you guys' questions on social media. A lot of them were directed towards uh, specifically Corey's views on athlete autonomy and his training system, but also some great questions on isometrics, foot training, uh, combining strength with sports skill training and more. Uh, this was a really fun show. And I will say uh, definitely the questions were probably a little bit more geared towards Corey's neck of the woods, which is awesome. I mean, honestly, I, I would just as well consider this a second interview with Corey uh, just as much as a Q&A. It's just fun to answer these questions alongside him. So for episode 211, uh, let's get on to this Q&A with myself and Corey Schlesinger. All right, we got a special Q&A today. Um, I was sick of just doing it myself, and so I'm super excited to have Corey here. So welcome to the Q&A, Corey. Hey, glad to be here, bro. All right, well, so let's get rolling. Uh, thanks for everyone who who popped questions. I think we just asked from on Instagram this time instead of some different um, mediums. Usually that's where most of them come from anyway. So uh, let's kick it off. Acceleration, Randy Peterson, thanks for the question. He asked about the uh, utility of ground-based strength, tumbling, crawling, rolling, wrestling, uh, with pro athletes. And so uh, maybe this could be framed too, like a college versus pro or as you work through the levels. Uh, what do you think about that one, Corey, in, in different populations? You know, it's it's interesting because everyone, no matter what, if you're a professional, if you're an amateur, they, they all fit on a spectrum of their own developments. So like taking a you know broad, like, okay, this is tumbling good for professional athletes. yes if they're lacking certain things and then the same with amateurs. Yes. If they're lacking certain things, but what you got to look at it more. So in my opinion is you got to just do a needs analysis and where that athlete is currently, you know, it's not this cutoff point where all of a sudden they're professional. So they don't need to do X, Y, or Z, or there's, you know, they're an amateur. So they have to do X, Y, and Z. You know, you have, you know, beautifully gifted genetic athletes who don't need a lot of our work to be hundred percent honest and so then you skip a lot of those steps or you have more strategies in place to keep them playing or keep them doing the things that make them awesome on the court or on the field. And then you have some that are like, well, they're, they're grinders or they're the ones that constantly need that training stimulus or that controlled stimulus to de- help them develop or stay more robust. And those athletes are the ones that, yeah, maybe they do need more quote unquote ground-based work or they need more skill acquisition not from a skill perspective on the court, but just from a human perspective. And that's where, for me, it's everybody across the board. I don't care if you're you know, a child going through your DNS in you know, stages <laughs> or you're an elite level athlete who's seven foot tall and can do a backflip dunk. All of them need some form or fashion of tools that will allow them to get in and out of scenarios via falling, which everyone in some point will go through um or you know uh being ground-based and being able to stabilize and being able to express that or not only express forces but also be able to um how should i say this to be able to sustain them to be able to uh, or accept them and to be able to redirect them and that's where yeah i think there's a, a question that was presented earlier with the uh, franz bosch you know you know um how should I say this um, influence? And it's like, yeah, some of these things are just self-organizing. And that's what I think tumbling comes into the equation is, yeah, man, you're just 
giving them exposures on how to self-organize in areas that might not be what their normative values are, a.k.a. playing basketball on a hardwood surface, which requires a, a ton of stiffness. How about we actually teach them how to fall and get more compliant so they can keep receiving those horses? Yeah, that that teaching how to fall makes me too think about like so much about we talk about rate of force and force production. We just think, you know, dead stop, go like or, or max stiffness. But the yielding element doesn't, I think, come necessarily as naturally on people's radar. But it's like, yeah, you got to learn to yield and you have to have both sides of the equation. I, I You said something and I was kind of intrigued by it or in the idea of like you talked about people who are real skilled versus the grinders. And I I. I look at like some of my athletes and I look at the ones who are, especially a tennis, a team that I've worked a lot um, in the last eight years. And I noticed that the guys who are the most skilled on the court tend to be really good at cartwheels and crawling and monkey bars and all that stuff. And the grinders, the people who are more of those, that grinder type tend to not quite be as good at that. And so are you saying that from a needs analysis, if I'm like looking at the pyramid, um, that, that, you know, and, and you look at like, are there bricks missing in the foundation? Like this person never probably did that stuff when they were a kid. They use more of a, just a grind your way through it, force your way through it. Period. So you're saying the less skilled players you would, um, I should say less, the less, the people who miss those skills a little bit less, you know, just skill oriented, you would use it more with them versus the players who are just super freak athletics. Like maybe they don't need some of that stuff as much. Is that what you're saying? So I would say it like this. Um, and this is, comes from, and something that me and you talked extensively about is the experience, right? And certain people need experiences that they just need exposure to, whether it's a new experience or it's an experience that gives them a lot of confidence. So what I mean by that is the example you gave, you know, the really skillful athletes that are good at tennis, they just so happen to be good at monkey bars and all these other athletic endeavors. But at the same time, that's, that's what makes them confident too. So, you know, exposing them to those things, but it's all in the spectrum of what is needed and how much of a dosage, if you will, or a percentage of the training you're going to do with that particular individual. Your grinders, once again, like what makes them confident? What makes them confident is squatting heavy weight, you know, generally. And so you got to give them that because from a neck up standpoint, that's what makes them confident in what they do. But then you got to find, okay, what percentage do I expose them to the things they're not so good at, which could be the tumbling, the cartwheeling, the monkey bars, et cetera, because you want to make their your human capacities better. And when you have your super skillful athletes, the ones that are great at the tumbling, the uh, anything that's just relative in their own body, when you add those external resistance, like those heavy loads. And all of a sudden you see, I mean, it's like a negative response. They're almost like, Oh my God, like this is terrible for me. You can see it in their face. Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, okay. I I need to give only five to 10% of that stuff. And I might need to do it in a form or fashion where it makes them a little bit more comfortable so they can actually load it. And then with your grinders, you go, okay, you know what? Maybe just warm ups. You're doing monkey bars. And then your meat and potatoes, you're, you're getting awesome. You're doing the things that make you feel super confident moving waves and bars are bending and all that type of stuff. But it's, I, I think the biggest problem, and this is just me digressing, but I think the biggest problem in our field is that it's, it's, they need to, people need to be able to systemize this or people need to put this in like sets and reps and it's got to be quantified and all these things have to be in place to see athletic, you know, performance. You have to find a way to validate your job objectively. You got to do all these things. And it's like, you know what? What if we just valued it in it as 
they, did they have a good experience? Like, did they actually come out of the weight room feeling better than they came in? Uh, is there progressive overload? Well, yeah, that, that's the only thing that matters because let's look at it from a time perspective, not, oh, man, did his force plate numbers change? Like, don't get me wrong. We get excited about those things. But those same things is what puts us in a box that says we need this objective measure. We need this output so that we can say, man, look at us do our job. And it's like, you know what? Maybe it's more so we create an environment for them to learn themselves, for them to be able to navigate. And, you know, you just leave breadcrumbs to where you think they need to go, but they're the ones that are dictating. it. And that's what I think would be really powerful is if we can create more of those systems where it's self-discovery more so than, well, here's your five sets of five. Here's your, you know, VBTs. Here's your, because those are going to go up in time, you know, but like just put in an environment where they can actually, so they can have actualization within themselves and self-discovery so that they can get better. Not necessarily like, oh man, because I assure you this, when I saw squat numbers go up, when I saw force plate numbers go up, I did not see wins go up <laughs> like that. And if that's the, what's ha- what's most important at the end of the day, then, you know, that's what we're trying to do here. And so that's where, you know, I, I want the experiences where years later I still got, I kid you not, I had a kid who's now a neurosurgeon. He's brilliant. I love this kid. But he was one of my first athletes at Santa Clara University. And he still goes, he, he, I swear, he hit me up two days ago saying, you know, I just did Dino One, which is this warm up that I literally made up on the fly. Um, it's a dynamic warm up routine. He's like, dude, I still do that to this day. So, you know, that's cool, man. I gave him an experience and he took it with him for the rest of his life. Like, these are the things that I want to, uh, to, to celebrate more so than I want to celebrate. Oh man, is eccentric RFD is through the roof now because we did X, Y, and Z, blah, 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 you know? I like, I love that, man. I almost think, you know, in some way, the level, and again, it's how you can quantify this from a, if we look at this research in psychology, I guess you can quantify it. But if you quantified your work by the smile on an athlete's face and their confidence, right? And what if we, this would, some people would probably call this heresy, but what if we rebranded being a strength coach to like, physical athlete experience facilitator or something like that. That's- I don't hate that. I don't hate that one bit, you know, because if that's what we're trying to do, like if, you, if you're in a college setting, you got four years with, with athletes, it better be a great experience. Like your world better be a great experience. That better be a part of their life because that's part of their development, not only from the neck down, but their neck up, you know, in the professional setting, you have a smaller window and that's okay. And these are things that, when now that I'm in the professional setting, I'm truly confidently, I should say, I'm confidently finding means and methods that are truly minimal effective dosage that are like, okay, this is like the minimal amount of work that this athlete needs to do to have the quote unquote stress response adaptation. And that's always a a changing spectrum, but it's what are the things that I'm doing that makes them want to come back? What are the things that I'm doing to create consistency? Because I do not care what program you are writing and what you're trying to accomplish. The only variable that will show change over time is consistency and intent. And if I don't have those, it doesn't matter what program I wrote for six weeks. It doesn't matter what exercise selection I do. What matters is them them continuously coming through the door day in and day out. Yeah, that, yeah and that experience is... It's key that that's the absolute foundation. I, I really like what you said, Corey, about because it makes me think about my um, emphasis is I, I think it's very easy to like for me, I love 
anything that's like athletic in the sense of cartwheels and crawls and every variation. And I make warmups up on the fly all the time based off that stuff and try to challenge athletes in new ways. And I'll be like, you know, I'll put like a dowel out in the middle of the weight room and say, find a creative way to get over this and then do a, a forward roll or you know, something like that. And just because it's, it's fun to do that and see how you're reading the athletes. But like you were saying, I think about an athlete's confidence and the grinder. Like I have kids that can't still can't really do a cartwheel. And if you can't do that and I'm like, like, okay, we're doing cartwheels, cartwheels and rolls. And, you know, it's like the last podcast we just talked about Christian Thibodeau on the recent podcast I released and people who, you know, maybe they're that way a little bit because maybe there was something that where they tried to be creative early in life and they failed and they felt bad about it. Or do you think about when people fail at something, if you're asking people to repeatedly do things in the weight room that they fail at, how is that? I mean, yeah, you probably need to get better at it, but you know. I think for me, it's like a lot of my kids still have a smile on their face when they're still trying to do a cartwheel and they're terrible. And, you know, but at the end of the day, just really that individual level, what feeds you? What makes you feel great about yourself? And then like the Ross Jeff's recent podcast, like, well, let's sprinkle in your weaknesses so it doesn't take away from, you know, the the great experience you have. And we'll try to bring that up over time. But at the end of the day, we need to have that foundation of you loving what you do and loving being in here. And yeah, man. A hundred percent. And that's the one thing that, I know there's like, there's going to be the subgroup that's listening to this and it's like, all oh, this is soft or all oh, this is that, you know, like they're not training, they're just doing whatever. And, you know, to those people like screw off. Right. Because like the reality is, look, when you're exposed to different demographics and different populations and different skill sets, if you don't humble yourself and realize how unnecessary you really are in this grand scheme, then, you know, then you have this, innate um, feeling of wanting to be important. And the one thing that I've realized through the ranks of going from low major all the way to professional is to realize like, okay, my value isn't in the weight room necessarily. My value can be in any other means and methods. It could be, you know, I'm the nail that's trying to keep the foundation together or I'm the mortar that's trying to keep the bricks together. But you got to find value in that person's experience at their level. And what I mean by that, and this is going to get a little hokey, but what I mean by that is just because you create a system of progressive overload by using the big three or by using the big bang movements does not equate to wins or to experiences that lead to wins. I'm sorry, but if you think that those strength numbers driving up truly truly affects what happens in sport, then our sport would be very different. You know, like that's the sport of weightlifting for a reason. And that's where I get super excited about exploring other means and methods that are, you know, your gymnastics, um, even mace work. You know, that's where I'm getting a lot more creative with kettlebells is the term that you used earlier was exposing them to more athletic things. Well, even in that sense, like lifting heavy barbells, you don't have to be athletic. Like period, like you don't have to be athletic to do those things. Quite the contrary, like athletic people aren't necessarily good at that, but yet we validate ourselves by those numbers going up. What I want to see is I want to put them in compression and then expression and then put them in positions where they have to continuously find new ways to make that more efficient. And when I create ways to make their compression and expression more efficient, whether it's wedging them between a barbell or wedging them between the ground in the air, aka sprinting or jumping, you know, that's to me the beauty of performance. 
not by validating it with, you know, 315 on the bar doing, you know, three reps at 0.8 meters per second. Like that's, that, that's just a totally different, um, that's a totally different topic because now I will say this though, when there's only one target to reach, like jumping higher because that is your sport or running faster because that is your sport. Your stuff has to become obviously a lot more narrow focused, but we're in team sports. (laughs) It's awesome. Like they, they get exposed to all sorts of different means and methods of cutting, change of direction, jumping, you know, there's an actual apparatus that they have to catch and throw, you know, whether it's a basketball, football, a baseball bat, whatever. And you're telling me that, you know, these traditional means and methods of just getting bigger, faster, stronger, or what's going to directly correlate to, you know, better success out there. I would say at low levels, yes. But after you tap that to like a year one, a year two developmental standpoint, there's so many other things that you got to tap into to make it more efficient. Yeah. And just from the sounds of it, you, especially you've worked with you know, the college and then the pro and just, I really seeing where you fit in the grand scheme of things. And, and I think we have to, the more levels we work with, the more we can see that too. And especially that, that pro level, I, I, you know, I always thought, you know, there's not like a bench press competition before the game and whoever, you know, benches the most gets 10 extra points or, but even honestly in team sport, even there's not a vertical jump or a dunk contest before the game where you get an extra five points. There's not a sprint competition. It's even, I mean, and I say that even for my own, you know, like I, I love jumping sprinting, but I have to even understand that even that isn't, that's not still the game. We want to make it better, but it's still not the game. And I mean, outputs are fun. Don't get me yeah. wrong. Oh, outputs yeah. are fun. Seeing outputs go up is fun. And once again, that's where you got to find a way to strategically put that into your training because it is, you do want to see yourself get better. And there's great means and me- methods and measures to show change over time. And I'm not saying that that's bad, but what I'm trying to, to, to illustrate in this is if that's what you put all your eggs in that basket, then I think you're going to sell yourself short from creating an experience that's going to make their development long-term better more so than their development in short-term. Yeah. I, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that with the eggs in the basket. Cause it's like, yeah, we want to jump higher and run faster and do things that we do in the game better. It's just the eggs in the basket where this being hyper-focused on that versus being able to zoom out a little bit and just see some more connections. And I, I that's, that's good for me. That's good for me to you know remember and think about too. Sometimes I get, my I, my uh, pendulum can swing pretty hard in different directions, and which is one of the reasons I really enjoy talking to you, Corey. Uh, but let's we got a lot of questions here, so let's uh, let's roll through some of these. Yeah. Jack Anderson, I guess this, this one's more directed for you, asking you about the Sun Cafe. I don't know what the Sun Cafe is, but what's uh, what's up what's up with that? Yeah. So what we tried to do was create an environment of autonomy, uh, because I think there's a lot of power in autonomy, and that's something I used a lot at Stanford especially in our in season lifting was to be able to, for them, the power of choice. You know, I don't care what squat pattern a kid does. I, I really don't. Um, they're generally going to find the one that they feel the most confident in doing, whether it's front squat, back squat, surgery. Like let's just use those three an example. If I expose an athlete to have those choices and I got a seven footer who has no mobility, he's going to figure out that Zercher is probably the best squat for him. Great. I create confidence. I create autonomy. They have power. They're like, oh, I chose this. And now that from a neck up and an intent standpoint, they're going to create more quote unquote stress response adaptation than I will ever create by saying, I think you should back squat because back squatting is better. You know, like it's who cares, right? I just need to progressively overload something. And as long as it looks right and flies right and the confident feels 
or the uh, athlete feels confident about doing it, then yeah, there's going to be an adaptation, a positive one at that. And so that's what I did um, at Stanford was creating, you know, uh, an environment where they actually got to choose the squat pattern or the extension pattern or whatever pattern that day for the meat and potatoes. And what I did was in a professional setting, we did something very similar with our warmups. Uh, and we basically created a, a menu where it was like appetizers, salads, um, and then our entrees and desserts. And essentially it's the same idea. I build your plate, you know, here's a plate like, or here's your menu. you know, just like you go to a restaurant, what do you want to eat today? It's like, you know what? I just want sides. <laughs> Some days you just want sides, which that would be our accessory list. Okay, great, man. Just hit your sides and, you know, do whatever you need to do. Hey, but you know, tomorrow I'm going to need that entree from you because, you know, it's the timing. Oh yeah, I got you. I got you. So then they come in. All right. What's your, what's your entree today? Well, you have the choice between trap bar deadlift and front squat, which one do you want to do? You know, and they're, oh, I choose that one. And so that's the point of it is where I don't care what the vessel is that's going to have this athlete acquire the certain stress that we're looking for that day. I just care about what they, um, I just care about getting that stress. And I don't care in what form or fashion it comes in, whether it's a front squat, back squat, whatever. And so I create, we, we tried to create this thing where it was the entire spectrum all the way from their warmups to the very end where it'd be their sides or desserts. So they can basically make their own plate and they create their own workout. The only thing we do is we, we uh, influence it from, okay, these are the things we're going to make available on the menu, right? (laughs) Like we, you know what, today everybody's coming in, this is a day before a game. So maybe we want to work quote unquote speed, strength or strength speed. Let's put those items on the menu. So they have to choose those. So we can influence what's on the menu. But once again, coming back to autonomy, they get to make the choice of whatever it is. Um, So once again, I don't care what vessel it's delivered in. I just care about the actual uh, or being able to influence the stress response that they want to adapt to. And from an intent standpoint, it's once again, like trying to create consistency, an environment where they want to keep coming into and driving intent. There's nothing more intentful than when I get to choose what I want to do. They're like that, that's going to have the highest intent, not me over them going back squats are going to do it. Let's go back squats. Like that's not going to do it, you know? And so that's where I think having that autonomy is going to drive more results more so than me, you know, trying to predict their own, their own success. Yeah. I, I love that. I like, you know, you think about a, like you think about a buffet, right? Like you, you don't plan out what you're going to eat at the buffet two weeks before it's like there's a there's a lot of intuition you're not you're not thinking oh i'm going to go to dude i haven't been in a buffet or whatever what's like a popular like golden corral is that was, that was not, there's not that many buffets yes. in the bay area there's just not um there's not there's not you're so right but uh yeah like i don't know yeah i, don't know, I was in ohio golden corral and you don't you wouldn't plan like two weeks ahead you don't go there because you planned out two weeks in ahead what you're i mean maybe some people do but there's that being that facil- <laughs> that facilitator aspect. Do you, yeah, I just, just I, the more I've been around good coaches, the more I see continually like power in the hands of the athlete. And I, I used to just see it, you know, maybe eight, nine years ago, I was just starting to hear, I mean, I didn't do this at all when I was a track coach, when I was age 25 to 29. I mean, I had no clue. I was, dude, I'm like there, I'm, I'm the, the interpersonal and coaching and athlete psychology thing has been something that has been the, the more slow and steady growing part of my own coaching. I was obsessed with the periodization and the exercises earlier in my life, but 
I didn't do any choice at all. And then I was just starting to hear at the tail end of that, whoa, there's coaches that actually give athletes menus when they're peaking, like, or have let athletes pick the exercises. That was novel when I was 29, 30. And, and since that point, I've just seen coaches do that more and more. And you realize like what type of autonomy you can give them at different points of the year. And I'm just like, dude, this is, this is it. This is this athlete centered level. And we have to, I think to be able to do that too, you have to be able to like, like you were saying before, like we think that we're so important sometimes. And when I can't put myself in the shoes of an athlete, know what they're thinking, let alone their, you know, what their body wants to do on the day, their intuition, like what feels good to you. I mean, it's, that's a critical step to make. And I, th- I like you know, seeing how you've done that with your menu and, and giving them that, um, that level over time of autonomy. Well, you said one so important word in there. You said critical. And that's the one thing that I don't think a lot of strength coaches have is critical thinking skills. Like, in my opinion, it has, oh, okay, well, X has to equal Y to equal Z. And there's no other way that can be done. And for someone to have the confidence to go in and give autonomy to athletes, you have to have such a layer of critical thinking skills to where you know the like you know the athlete well enough to understand what their needs are. The athlete knows themselves well enough to know what they want to do that day. What your goal is to put them in an environment where that where both needs of that is going to be met. And to me, that's where you're going to get to the quote unquote peak faster more efficient, effective. Now, don't get me wrong. There's going to be times where it's like, man, today was a complete wash. But how many times have we seen that when you try to program a a five-week cycle or whatever? Like so many wash days, they walk in and they look like crap and you're like, well, today's max effort day, so you got to do max effort work, so I don't care. And then, you know, you just put them in the hole harder. And you're like, well, you just did more damage more so than you guys experimenting around or playing around with a new exercise and didn't really get any load with it. At least they got some, like to me, at least lymphatically, they got something done. <laughs> they got they got to leave the session feeling better. So maybe that helps them recover more before going into their next deal. But that's the one thing that I, you said is like that, that one word, critical. And a lot of people don't have those critical thinking skills that will allow them to create this environment for these things to happen. And it's hard when you're in team sport because now you got to consider multiple athletes. And, you know, for me, it's even it's a lot smoother than it is for like a football team. Now that's different, right? You got 50 dudes and you're running a factory. Like those guys like, Hey man, all the credit in the world, you're doing the best that you possibly can with the means that you got. Luckily you already have strong athletes. So, you know, you get to play around with some other variables. Me on the other hand, I work in, you know, a crazy population where they're, they're, um, I said, they're, um, their biomechanics, if you will, is so interesting. <laughs> like everything about them, they're just they're very rare human beings. And for me to take traditional training and traditional thought processes and periodization models and et cetera, et cetera, and try to apply it to this very specific type of human it, it who's in a different type of environment, aka playing basketball on a hardwood surface, it's very, very different. And it's 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 you cannot just take those traditional means and think it's going to cause this stress response adaptation, just like it does to all other humans that are in different scenarios. That's where I have always drifted towards so many different means and methods and variety because I want to make them better athletes. And, you know, just because they do a between the legs dunk doesn't make them a good athlete. I mean, that's just one aspect of athleticism. 
the things that make them good, I'm all in favor for. But going back to our original question, to the first question, you know, you got to find means and methods that exposes them to different stressors that will allow them to continue to do those things. And I think that's the most important part is, okay, if you're awesome at vertical jumping or you're awesome at, you know, your reactivity is unbelievable, like your elasticity is great. Okay, great. Um, but that doesn't last for 10 years in an NBA season or an NBA career. I mean, Vince Carter is a great example of that. Was he doing crazy windmill dunks at the end of his career? Absolutely not. So he had to shift his focus and became a way better skillful or he became a more skillful and more experienced athlete. And that's what kept the runway going for him, right? He still had value. And that's what you got to do in, you know, for these athletes. You got to find a way to increase their longevity and increase their value. And sometimes it's giving them things that they're not good at. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Oh, yeah. How do we I, get there? Sorry, I, I digress. I don't know. It's a good example, though. I, You know, I was going to say, too, I, I, and I'll, I'll leave it with this because we've got a few more. I mean, there's no way we're going to get to all these questions, but that's fine. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it would do this would be like a show at this rate. Uh, <laughs> anyways, so, yeah, sorry. Maybe we'll have to have around two or three later on with just the, the questions we got. But I was thinking about, too, like, like basketball, super chaotic not only super chaotic, but a ton of different body types from the point guard to the center versus a sport like, you know, the cross country. Or I know there's a lot of like track people listen to this too. Or I think about Bonder Chuck's training system where, you know, there's no variation in your, I mean, you're training just till you hit adaptation, but like, so there's a system outside of that. I just think about there's probably a little spectrum. Like if I'm training distance runners, yeah, I may have given them some days where they get a little bit of a choice, but at the end of the day, you know, it's more about the mileage or some of the external parameters where the more chaotic and the more decisions and the more different types of athletes you have, it just seems like that need for really be purposefully planning that stuff in there probably increases. I think it's important no matter what, um, but I, I would imagine that might be more important in basketball than it might be in like a, a more uh, singular element sport. Right. And that's where... You know, at the end of the day, though, like, and this is the truth, like, once again, coming back to the subgroup, that's probably like, well, they don't train or anything. Don't get me wrong. You have to get work done. Like, let's 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 not forget that. Like, we got to get work done. But for me, the biggest low hanging fruit to get work done, isometrics. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Isometrics, eccentrics. And I know we got a question on that, so we can probably. Yeah, let's just roll into it. Yeah, yeah. Your your favorite isometrics. Here we go. So my favorite isometric is. Well, there's, okay, there's two because once again, like if you do one, you got to have the complimentary one on the other end of the spectrum to get it done. My favorite um, is a yielding isometric at the sporting angles that they create the most often. So when I think of the one that's the most explosive is probably a quarter squat at plantar flexion, right? That's the one where they express the force, right? Like that a quote unquote where the amortization mm-hmm. phase meets, right? I love doing that one yielding. Uh, for a multitude of reasons, but that's the one I want to load up the most, right? And then there's the other end where it's completely unloaded, where you get them in their most weakest position, which is probably for basketball players because they're so taped and braced year-round that they don't have that full planet flexion. And that's the one where it's like that last little bit of a push-off is super weak. So I assist them. I allow them to push down on um, – a fixed object to allow them to get an extra range and then have them just hold that for dear life. Just keep holding, keep holding, keep holding to give them that strength. So it's that when we reverse that, it's that initial contact when they strike the ground would have a little bit more resistance before they get from just 
hit fall and then find that area where there is strength and then ease into it because and the reason why i say that is because i know that's what was missing with my achilles when i tore it (laughs) it is my lack of plantar flexion at the top like strength to be able to actually hold the very tip top i would land and then i would fall to a position to where i finally got some strength and then it'll just load up that tissue to to I mean, I mean, there's some other reasons why, especially from a foot standpoint, but I know for a fact that I was a little missing that last bit. So those are my two favorite ISOs. Yeah, that's uh, the, the whole plantar flexion into because we, we can take this into the Achilles talk, too. And I'll say, too, well, before we do that, because I, I, I'm going to come back to that, um, you know, so. Where was I going with this? <laughs> uh, okay. Well, what, yeah. what is your favorite ISOs? Yeah, I was gonna say I should probably I should probably throw a few answers in here too. Uh, the, okay, so for me, I really I really um, my um, I think just being a strength coach in the sense of where my work is very much um, you know being a track coach for six years and then being a strength coach. I mean, I was doing both through you know, but it's. Uh, I've gone to a place where the extreme isometrics from a resiliency and a base standpoint and using that as a staple has been a real big one. And so from a, just a general per- perspective, ISO lunge and then ISO push up, and really, and hanging, like those are my real big yes. three, super simple. Everyone should be able to do these. Everyone should get to a solid baseline of these working with swimmers too. I've just, I've noticed that you start to put things together when you put someone in ISO push up and you see what happens or an ISO lunge and you see what happens. And so, yeah, keeping it simple, those have been my real big three, and everyone does those in some level and should be at some level of capacity. The ISO lunge, I love and appreciate more every year, and even going through Gary Ward's stuff, and I was working with Rocky Snyder yesterday, who's also going to be on this podcast coming up, and he was just showing how, even in just regular walking lunges, going into the pelvis and the opposition, and how the front leg... Uh, the front leg kind of needs to flex and the back leg needs to extend into the point. And if you do the extreme ISO lunge the way that Jay Schrader, you know, would have it, you're really extending that back leg hard. And this is the gait pattern. Like this is what your pelvis actually does when you're moving. And we get people at Darian Barr talks about people who are stuck in various ways. They might be stuck front, stuck back, or we talk about people who are stuck in anterior tilt or anything like that. Like we can really take that, that pelvic action out in the gait pattern and people feel better after that. And so I, you're, I'm constantly just seeing how, and the cool thing is in isometrics too, you can't screw up um, human movement in the sense of, you know, if we squat enough and we just are pushing our knees out and going through our heels on everything, yeah, you're going right. to you're gonna screw up human movement. And I think right. we screw it up, I think weights can screw it up a lot because if I think about anything, I think about, I try, I'm trying to see more and more of the gait cycle show up in everything, except for like the really heavy loaded stuff. You have to be like, you can't, you can't heavy squat the same way you jump with a triangle. It's just, I mean, you can, but right. I, I would be hesitant. Uh, I would be hesitant. <laughs> I'd be hesitant to, to really like, you know, cause to, to fit this idea, let's really triangle up the squat. And so Anyways, I just say that because I, I just I think of it as allowing us to maintain a more purity of a movement and doing that as a greater percentage of what we do. And then for yeah, like the performance driven side, yeah, like I love the uh, I throw this in French contrast. If we're getting to that, is I love leading off a French contrast with that heavy yielding ISO, uh, like a like a quarter like a heavy ass quarter squat. For me, I've always responded really well because that's more my jump range. Or someone else might be a little lower, but you know, putting I mean, shoot, I was. I mean, I was weak as hell in a deep squat, but I could throw over 500 on that quarter and hold it, you know, for however long and no problem. And then everything else in the, 
in the that circuit would be better and so you know it's kind of those are my two splits of that i and that's that's what i like to do with it all i love that and the one thing you said in there that i i mean been a huge advocate of is hanging like talk about shoulder health um gosh and then grip strength you know just in general like hanging has been a huge staple of mine ever since my like first years at UAB. Um, but that's where you'll find out more about an athlete. If you just have them hang than anything else, in my opinion, like if I was to pick one health assessment to do, like remember the, remember the uh, presidential fitness test? Oh yeah. Bro. Like first off, what happened to it? I don't know if it's yeah. in existence anymore, but that's one that across the board you can do from kindergarten all the way to your senior year in high school, that's a great assessment for everything. Because if you're a fat kid, well, you're not going to hang long. Okay, cool. Well, that's one thing that we already know, right? Um, and if you're a weak kid, you're not going to hang long either. And But if you're relatively strong for your own body weight, you're going to be able to hold and then you're going to be able to advance it with maybe a single arm hold or then maybe make it more isodynamic where you're actually going from you know monkey bar to monkey bar. Like these are things that can just, it'll show up in multiple um, in multiple facets just with one test alone, which is an iso hold. And you can take that obviously with lunging and you can take that obviously with heavy quarter squatting and make it more performance based. Like that's where I, I, thanks to you, I've been more like driven to like, okay, okay. Everybody's talking about isometrics. So like, there's gotta be something there. Right. And then you have Keith Barr and you're like, Oh wow. Like oh, that, that makes a lot more sense the way he puts it. So, you know, looking at some of these brilliant individuals that are really applying it at a high level but at the end of the day, it's the safest way of creating force. Like the safest way. Like you can't, like you said, you can't screw it up. Like you can't screw up isometrics. And when I think from like a specific exercise standpoint, one of my favorites to load up is a safety squat bar split with a hack field hold. So what I mean by that is if anyone knows what a hack field squat is, that's where you have a safety squat bar, AKA a bar that hangs on your, or that is placed on your back and you don't need to use your hands to hold it. So you can do like a, a squat without using your hands. And then the hack field aspect of it is where there's a barbell or some type of immovable object in front of you where you can put your hands on to help support you so that you can almost create an assistance on the squat. So what I like to do is split it, have an active foot, if you will, or a floating heel, split it, hang at the bottom. And then because now I can truly overload it because now I have stability. Because the single leg, obviously, or with split squat stance, you're creating instability because of your stance that you're in. But as soon as I can put my hands on something and create more stability, I can create a ton more load, especially when I get into that position. Because that's the hardest thing to do, right? Like if you're doing a heavy split squat, it's getting into the position. It's not holding the position. Once you're finally like centered, you're like, okay, I can hold this forever. I need to hold it for until my grip strength gives out or whatever. But the reason why I like using the hack field is because it'll give you extra tonnage to put you into that position. And then from there, just let it go like that, that you just have your hands hovering. And now I just overloaded what I thought I could do because now I had the assistance and stability to get me into that position. And then I'm always there safely to grab onto at any moment. And that's what I think. So that's, and when we're talking about favorite, like that's my favorite actual exercise from a very specific standpoint. I've noticed that you can load athletes up way more when the safety measure is a hundred percent, like in the right. sense of, 
I've had athletes who wouldn't want to squat more than 185, but then you put them in a situation where it's like, um, I like, I like functional isometrics where it's like, look, just lift this up one inch off the pin and hold it. Like if you don't have a force plate, like out to do Alex Natera stuff and they'll go way more than what their squat, you just, you remove the fear factor. And now it's just all you and the, the bar and there's that motor outputs. And I've, I've done something similar in the sense of I've enjoyed doing uh, like a split stance. Uh, I don't know what you call this, but where the bar is, you're in a lunge and the bar is in a rack below you. And it's uh, basically between your legs and you're pulling up uh, kind of like a Jefferson deadlift setup, but with a yeah. lunge and you're pulling yeah. from like a low bar into pins and you can right. do a ton of weight in that. And I, I love pairing that with acceleration work. It just seems to fit really well. And yeah, that's, dude, that stuff's where it's at, man. Uh, I know some people asked us some, some foot stuff, some uh, floating heel stuff, some Achilles stuff. I know. Well, you have torn your Achilles, and you you had said that yes, yeah, have. not having that. But what was interesting, I remember we were talking about this at uh, one of the rewire clinics with the Darian Bars. You used to have you used to have kind of duck feet, and then you manually like turn them in, right, or something like that. Like, didn't someone tell you no, to do that, or what was the deal there? Yeah, you're 100 percent right. I was in college, and I don't know where I got this from, but it's like, oh, Corey, man, you walk with your feet like out. Like, you got to turn those things in and walk straight. And I was so conscious about it at that point. Like I, I was almost insecure. I'm like, God, do I walk like a, like, do I walk, like, do I not have swag in my walk? Like, <laughs> sorry, if you're in basketball and you have a weird looking walk, like you gotta be cool, man. Like that's not a cool walk if you're waddling, you know what I mean? I was like, man, I thought I had a, a, a pretty sweet stride just walking to class, you know? And then when someone made that comment, I'm like, oh my God. And it was someone that was from a health perspective too. I think it was a, I think our head athletic trainer or somebody, no, it was, I think it was like a, maybe a, a professor or something like that in our biomechanics. I don't know. But anyways, so I was like, oh, oh I got to straighten my feet out. I got to straighten my feet out. Well, if you look at my structure, like I'm, I'm not significantly bow-legged, but I'm bow-legged. Um, and then I don't have any calves whatsoever. <laughs> and, you know, I have decently developed quads and glutes. So I'm sitting there like, well, what am I really doing by that? And reality i think i like i think i messed myself up like significantly i think i messed myself up and i look at like lebron james and i'm not saying we're the same person by any stretch of the imagination but when you watch that dude walk you're like jesus is he like on a horse like i mean he's, he's so straddled if you will and externally rotated and he's the best athlete on the planet <laughs> you know and i'm like well dang man maybe i maybe there was something to that and so you know, years later, I mean, I know when I create force, I externally rotate my foot. And if you if you watch or had a, a camera on me from from behind and I take off sprinting, you know, I, I know I go into external rotation like hard. I open up my hip and I push and then I go into plantar flexion and then it rolls over. Um, and over the years, because of, you know, all these other interventions, I started developing such a neck, like a bad tendinosis, like so bad. But I was also weighing 220 pounds on top of a faulty structure that I was trying to do all these other mechanics that make me correct, if you will. And what happened is I was dealing with tendinosis for a year. I was trying to be that, you know, meathead that was like, Oh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. It's just sore. I would literally wake up in the morning. It would take me 10 minutes to be able to walk normal <laughs> just Whoa. to get rid of it. I'd, I'd walk on my heels down the stairs because I could not walk on the ball on my foot because it brings so much pain. And in my head, I'm like, oh, it's just tendinosis, you know, I'll do some isometrics here, I'll do this, and it'll all get better over time, and I'll take some supplements. And then, you know, I felt just good enough to play pickup, and I landed on someone's foot. 
And my tendon was so bad that, you know, 99% of the time, my, when you land on someone's foot, you're going to roll it. Well, I didn't roll it. It just stuck. And I just snapped it backwards. Because no one, yeah. like, I don't know many people that have torn their Achilles landing on someone's foot. I know a lot of people who do it their, themselves. They create on their own fruition. Like, they, they have that quick reactivity, and then they go and, you know, like, tear their own Achilles. But I did it by, like, a contact injury. And I was like, man, that shit should have just rolled. Mm-hmm. Like, I should have just rolled my ankle, and which is I'm not saying is a good thing, but it would have been a lot better than tearing my Achilles. But my tendon, my Achilles tendon was so weak and so compromised that it's like, nope, that's the weaker structure. So my forces are going to go towards the weak, like the the least amount of force, which is uh, unfortunately uh, dorsiflexion. Yeah, when you were telling that story, it was making me think of, and, and I've learned a lot of this, like Gary Ward stuff and David Gray, but the idea of when you're turning your feet in, you're creating a supination. And the, like we talk a lot about dorsiflexion range and oh, what's your dorsiflexion. But if you're a, on a supinated foot, we got bones running into each other and anything right. to go beyond that is going to be just like messing stuff up. Like you're going to be getting the ligaments or weird stuff with Achilles. So I was, you know, I was thinking, I, I didn't even know you'd land on someone's foot, but in my mind, I'm like, well, if you have a foot that's dorsiflexion limited because of the joint block and now you're like jammed into it, right? Like that's going to, that's going to be a rough one. <laughs> and, uh, so, and that's what it was. Cause it was at the insertion. It was at the heel. Like it wasn't like at the the belly or anything like that. It was at the heel. And so that's when it was just such like when they t- when they opened me up, they're like that tendon was so bad, Corey. Like it was just frayed. Like so it didn't like tear like a like a pop or anything like that. It was just basically frayed off like mm-hmm. you would um would be a good example of that. Like, you know, the frames on a blanket. Yeah. Like that would be the way of describing it. Like that's the only thing that was left was just fraying off the bone. And you're just like, man, like that is just atrocious to think about. Yeah, no, I don't want to think about it right now. <laughs> you're like, yeah, I, dude, if I've learned anything though, just like, and really, this has just been like the last few years is just, and with my own Achilles, because I've had Achilles issues too. So it's like you got a question that really deals with both of us here. And I, for me, it was just getting the joints to move, getting the calcaneus to move, and realizing that our Achilles is at the mercy of of other joints. And and for me, it's like if my calcaneus is not moving then well the Achilles has to do more and it's it's right. just yeah for me so I, I for my answer in that question I I mean there's I think there's a lot of ways to hit it and then but my real core of it all has gotten into can the bones of your foot move as as a lot as they're supposed to and uh I'm it's nice to have young kids too I got kids two and three so I'm always, I'm always watching their feet when they walk like this has such a good little tripod and they're you know I'm like man I wish I could get back to this I, I mean I am I'm working on it so it's uh that's, Man, that's so interesting to say that because I think specifically with the basketball population, like you said, like as kids, you'll they'll, they'll do it naturally. They'll have that nice little tripod. But then like the older you get, it's like, man, I, I need those new Nikes. <laughs> I need those new this. I need these new, new that. And then you're just constantly changing footwear. And for me, like the basketball population, I mean, I see guys playing new pairs of shoes every single game. Like they won't wear the that's same crazy. shoe twice, you know, and I'm like, goodness man i just i just I, you can't say anything at that point you're yeah. just like well you just hold on or then you have your interventions where you're like okay i guess we're doing a lot of footwork because that's probably yeah. the only thing i need to do with you based on what your behavior is in the environment you're creating yeah that's crazy new pair of shoes every game i wonder like what happens to those old shoes i'm sure like tons of people would want to wear like you know and so, hey if, if if you hopefully you are befriended one of them and they wear the same size because if you're in that case, <laughs> oh, yeah. you are, you are yeah. on the come up. Like, 
yeah yeah oh yeah my yeah like size 18 or something like how many people out there are gonna be able to yeah exactly uh flo- floating heel stuff someone asked about floating heel too i know you do a lot of that i've kind of gotten in that world a little bit at least you know considering a lot of that and i know um cal Dietz has talked about you know moving a majority or a large portion or, or a very big portion of his bilateral squatting into that mode what's your experience been with the floating heel and how have you gotten into that and experiences you how often do you use that with your population yeah, it was very similar. Like Cal was the one that really brought this to light, like to make it popular and to make it like, okay, well, there's some, there's something to this, but like just from an observational standpoint, like yesterday, I think on sports center, they had it on their Instagram feed of that kid who jumped on that just jump mat and had like a 47.1 standing bird or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you, I, I just watched his heels and it didn't even come close to the ground. Like he was so stiff, like it didn't even come close to the mm-hmm. ground when he was loading. And I'm sitting there like, oh man, like it makes a lot of sense or it doesn't make much sense to me when you see heavy back squatting, when everything shifted to the opposite end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. which is the heels. And then you think about running and jumping and I'm like, when is your heels ever <laughs> touching the ground during any of that? And you're like, oh wait, never. So for me, it made a lot of sense because once again, like my lower leg complex is so compromised um, that I realized I'm like, I'm training everything else to be strong, but my foot and ankle, you know, when you do heavy squatting and you're in heels and you're loading your backside and you're doing everything you can to, you know, just get a more powerful squat, you realize, okay, okay, I'm making my glutes stronger. I'm making my hips, I'm making all these other things stronger, but I'm not making the thing that I need to be the strongest, which is the thing that comes into contact with the crown, Mm -hmm. which is my foot and ankle. And that's where it's like, Oh no, like how do I now rectify this? And it's like, well, you got to take a a humble pill big time because now that load's got to decrease by like at least, you know, 50% when you're first starting off on now integrating that into your bilateral squatting because to be able to maintain that position. And that's where, you need apparatuses that will create stability for that, like a Smith machine. I love a Smith machine. I think a Smith machine is one of the greatest tools you can use, especially with longer levered athletes. But you can have them doing their active foot bilateral squatting on a Smith machine, and now balance isn't the issue. And then you upgrade them, right? And now you, all it is is taking a um, – you put them in an environment to load, so now I'm getting the specific stress that I'm looking for. And then you add complexity by now taking the stability aspect away from it. And then when you have stability and load, congratulations, you got hopefully a positive adaptation. I like that progression too. I, I mean, I think, cause I think a lot of athletes, there might be some athletes who have super good sensation in their feet and balance and be fine. And to be honest, I actually can almost squat more with my heels, like standing on two plates with my heels off the ground than I can with everything on. I think it's just cause I'm so like, that's just my jam an elastic athlete. Right. But I think right. about um, Gary Ward and, and and then David Gray mentioned this on my podcast a while ago, but he's like to to pronate the foot properly, you have to be able to load the forefoot effectively. You have to be able to load that transverse arch, the balls of the feet. And if you can't do that, you're not going to get proper pronation. And then I think about how we oftentimes coach these lifts. Like it, maybe we could say through our heels, maybe we don't, but usually it's knees out. It's something that's supinated, supinating the athlete. Right. And like, if we do that enough, what are we, what's happening with the forefoot? What's happening with pronation? You know, I'm not going to say it's, it's probably not going to happen to you in a month, you know, if you do stuff like that, but I don't know, take someone in knees out, squat them and supination, squat them for a year or two. 
And I think you might start to see some changes that you might not want to see. And so I think about that forefoot squat too with like, let's put the ground down for a proper pronation. Let's put the ground down to let this foot operate the way you're supposed to. And then try squatting knees out too with your, I mean, you could do it, right? But try squatting knees out, try jamming, you know, yourself in that, that typical position with the foot. I mean, you could do it, but it just doesn't, it doesn't connect. It's like, wait, this isn't how I'm supposed to move when I have my heels off the ground, really? Like, you know, I mean, I get you're a little more bow legged than I am. So you might have a little more than me, but to like force someone to that position with, it's like, wait, what am I doing? I'm, I'm on the balls of my feet. I'm athletic now. Like, shouldn't I be a little more neutral? Like what's going on here? So yeah, I, I love that stuff. And that's where like, I, you just look at, you know, great sprinters or when you're trying to develop great sprinters, if you will, um, in the team sport aspect, the one thing that I do the most when identifying energy leaks is super heavy prowler pushes. Right, like you take a sled and you push them really, like get them to go super heavy, like body weight plus, and then watch the first thing that goes back in their heel. Like all of a sudden they go in extreme dorsiflexion. And you're like, yeah, that's the weakest thing. <laughs> and, and like we're basketball players, it's ninety percent of the time. Um, but like then you got your your guys that can really go that are super elastic, and the, the first thing that gives out is actually their hips. And then their heels stay super rigid. Yeah, that's like their they engine. stay in that yeah. perfection. And then you go, okay, well, that's that energy leak. And once again, isometrics. Like you basically get them to doing a, an isometric sprint. You put them in that very specific position and just look for energy leaks. And coming back to the isometric, like that's what's so great about isometrics. You put them in a position long enough, you're going to find out where their energy leaks are. You're going to find out where they're compromised. And not only from a training, stress response, adaptation, whatever standpoint, you're seeing it from an assessment. Like here's an easy assessment. If I put them in an active foot, with just body weight. And you see that thing, that heel just bouncing up and down, you know, that they're like muscularly trying to get the job done. And at some point that's got to give out. And that means the tendon's not doing the job that it needs to do. And then eventually you start seeing their training. You start loading them up. All of a sudden that heel starts, stops bouncing. They become more tendon oriented. They become, you know, loading the structure that you want them to load or they finally relax their musculature to allow them to get, you know, the tendons to be able to do the job that they're supposed to do. And you see it in real time. And I didn't have to do a single split. I didn't have to do a single eccentric concentric action to get that job done. Yeah. Like you said, the, the prowler, really the prowler push was the original squat on the the heels floating squat if you do it right right like because yes it's the original oh, such a good way of putting it. <laughs> yeah because if you, it's funny I, I mean you watch so many sled pushes and it's just like that heel's getting slammed straight down the ground it's like what are we really reinforcing here right this is right. uh this is not a good way to connect your your forefoot to your glue that's for sure and it's probably a good way to like teach yourself to tear your achilles too Especially Facts. if you're dropping into that split step and that back foot heel slamming in the ground and you overstretch that thing. It's, um, and that's, that, that's how you see most Achilles tears is that false step. You know, they yep. take that false step and then right into that forward. Uh, but yeah, that it's, it's really interesting. All right. Okay. So, all right. So I think we got time for uh, one more last question or maybe some related ones. And I know a couple people indicated asking about uh, progressing power development or strength development in light of an athlete's skill development. So I suppose that could mean a few things based off where in the season it is, total off season or whatnot. But maybe let's just say in the context of, you know, you're, you're practicing a fair amount, you're not in the competitive season yet. How does uh, your ideas on strength, uh, how is that impacted by all the skill work they're trying to get better at? So this is a topic I'm very passionate about, actually, because when I look at track and field 
Like I feel like track and field is the purest form of this. The greatest track coaches were also the greatest strength coaches, right? They, they were the all encompassing of knowledge of ev- everything across the spectrum to make that athlete perform better. Right. You had to be more skillful at the running or the technical aspects of running. You had to develop, you know, the strength power and et cetera, and the weight room to help complement that. And if it didn't, you know how it didn't, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But when we talk about it in a team sport setting, the skill coach or the individual coach that helps develop these skills, like I think all of it can be done within the sport itself. That's where in conjunction to, if I was to truly plan out for someone to become more explosive, quote unquote, or someone to jump higher, well, I want to do it in the context of their sport, right? And so I, the last thing I want to do is if we're also trying to develop skill is to rob them of their resources to develop that skill. And if I'm in the weight room trying to get all these outputs from them that could that could blunter or um, have a negative impact on the skill work that they're trying to develop on the court, then I did everyone a disservice. And in early stages I am with an athlete, like if you're you know anywhere between 15 to 21 years old, maybe a little bit later, that maybe you're so plastic that you can handle it. Like maybe like, you know, you, you have such a reservoir to where you can do it both or all of it at once. But the older the athlete gets, the last thing you want to do is rob them of their resources to develop that skill more. So let's take, for example, I want an athlete to dunk, right? Well, dunking is a skill, but you have to have extreme outputs to get the job done, especially if you, if you're just getting to that point where you're dunking. So why don't we coordinate the actual technical session or the tactic or the, excuse me, the technical session that they're doing it within the confines of the sport and maybe track that opposed to me also doing very similar things in the weight room. What I want to do is I want to complement that. And if I'm complementing that I'm doing it in a sense where I'm doing the exact opposite in the spectrum, or maybe it's isometrics, eccentrics, you know, not necessarily the outputs or the concentric based work. And so that's where, once again, like, let's take the sport itself, reverse engineer it. Okay, how can I affect that output that they're doing on the court with the most, uh, without doing more output work in the weight room? Because that's the one thing I see the most of. And I think back in my college career, was I actually building more power? Was I building all these things that I thought I was building? by trying to build it in a weight room with a bunch of cleans and snatches while simultaneously they were trying to get better at sport or was I robbing them of those resources to allow their motor learning or to allow them to coordinate better, to make them better at the synchronization that it takes to go from point A to point B to take that ball and rip it across the body into a one, two step and get above the rim and dunk it. So that's where like, I'm very passionate about this subject because I think if you're a really good strength coach and you've cornered yourself into a market, for instance, for me, it's basketball, that you now have to truly go over onto the sport coaching side. As far as from the technical skill standpoint, you've got to understand and feel and know how to move. Like, Luckily, I played college basketball at the lowest level, but I played, you know, I, play, um, I played longer than you know, most strength coaches, where now you can actually get onto the court and feel it. And go, okay, I need to coordinate this. I need X, Y, and Z. 
And then I know the resources it took for me to do that technical skill on the court that just so happened to have a large output physically that I now know, okay, in the weight room, this is how I'm going to complement those outputs to help give it more of a base to, to increase more so than say, Oh, well, let's do hang or do power cleans from the floor, concentric base, concentric base, concentric base, when they're already doing that on the court. Yeah, I, I like, um, I mean, I didn't play college ball, but I played high school ball. And in going through all that, it's, you know, putting yourself in the shoes of the player. It's hard to think about all the, your, your brain being so on trying to go through tactics and the, the you know, technical elements and then all the skills your body's doing as well. And now you're going to go in the weight room and learn a bunch of other skills. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, it's just a lot. And so I like, um, I mean, when I was playing in high school, I would just, after practice, I remember I, I mean, we didn't have a strength coach when I was in high school. I just, I don't even know what the, I don't know what the other guys did, but I would always go after practice, I'd go home and I'd eat dinner and then I'd, I'd actually lift it like eight at night. And, but it was always just like, all I had mental energy for was just like one or two lifts and they weren't complex. It was just for the most part, like maybe a set of barbell step-ups, you know, some push-ups or something. Like it was never, I think I was into cleans a little bit like my sophomore year, but which isn't, you know, it's good. I, I don't think it's a bad thing, but I, I just felt like the more like leaving the complexity to the court. And I think that like Olympic lifts, maybe in the off season, we aren't playing any basketball. Like I do think it's good to learn new skills in that transition period when you're not playing ball and do something else. That's mentally fun. If you like learning cleans or I don't know, maybe you like playing tennis or I, I don't know, like something that's not, your sport, but I, I will say you mentioned the ISOs and I, dude, I've been having some pretty big realizations with this is that especially the body weight ISOs, I feel like they, and I've um, been working out a little bit with uh, Alex Lee, who was on this podcast. He was mentored and trained by Dr. Tommy John and he had noticed, and I feel the same thing with the body weight ISOs that it almost improves or does, it improves your coordination in the game for whatever reason. And I, I had an anecdote that I saw where I was recently, this with myself, I was doing a ton of like ISO push-ups and, and that type of, and ISO lunges and everything else. But I, I like to do free handstand holds for time every now and then. And I, after doing like maybe three weeks of just really getting after the extreme ISOs, I go up in my extreme, my, my handstand hold that I hadn't practiced for a while and did like three times longer. And so there's wow. something that, I don't know, maybe it's like the coordination the brain needs to hold that position under some level of fatigue. I don't really know, but I think that a lot of people who have done that type of thing would say the same thing. And so I've just, that's just an act on mine where I think about the isometrics. If, if I'm going to be doing complex, like crazy playing my sport, maybe to take things, just start with that simplest, most bare bones thing and then try not to offset you know, that, that skill or how can I compliment your skill? You know, how can I not try to you know, take too many things away? So, and that, I love that. Like we're not robbing them of re you, you've increased, like you had a specific skill handstand and that's a skill. Like you see it in CrossFit games, you see it all like, that's a skill to be able to do that. And you didn't do that. You did something that's exact opposite. Actually, like you got to more stability, which is a push up hold. And then you just hold it for a longer duration because you have more stability and it's a more favorable position. And then sure enough, your handstand got better. Like that's where it's like, I didn't, you didn't do explosive handstands. Mm -hmm. You didn't do like, you know what I'm saying? You didn't take, you know, double your body weight above your head and hold it. You know, you did something that was just very simple and it didn't rob you of that resource. And so that's where I'm like, from an isometric standpoint, I think a very easy blend is, you start off your session 
if you're doing skill work, you do a quote unquote potentiation, right? Like, so maybe you're doing an isometric that is like an IMTP, right? Like you're doing something to increase a ton of motor units, right? And then you contrast it with skill, right? Then you're going into the skill, which in this case, the skill is high outputs. So it's dunks, right? And then you end the session with more of the yielding or more of the holds where it's going to be a lot longer. And you didn't rob any resources there. You know, you, you complemented it. You, you created more motor unit activity. You created all these things to help your skill to, to uh, potentiate and explore, explore your skill set to create more force. And then you did the exact opposite. Then you went and just did the yielding isometrics, which will now increase the robustness of the things that you've been trying to do so that you can do it longer. Awesome. Like if you ask me like that, you don't really need strength coaches anymore. You know, you just take the skill coach and teach them very simple things like that. And then there you go. Like you got, you got the best strength coach on the planet right there because it's affecting the skill. It's affecting what they actually do on the court. And, you know, I've been, I've been, I mean, strength coaches are probably not happy with me saying things like that because it's their job security, but you know, that, that tide ain't going to change for a while, but I'm telling you strength coaches, it's coming. Like you better start getting well-versed and you better be able to demonstrate skills on the basketball court or on the football field or wherever you're doing, because what you see in football is football strength coaches are football players, ex football players. Mm -hmm. You don't see ex basketball players being football strength coaches, but you damn sure see football strength coaches who become basketball strength coaches see that all the time. So it's very rare that you have a basketball strength coach who actually played the game basketball at a high level. It's you generally never see that. Like it's a, such a small percentage. It's ridiculous. I've never seen a football strength coach become a sprint coach. Like, I don't know. I haven't seen that. You know, <laughs> no, I've seen I haven't the either. opposite, you know? And so that's what I'm saying. Like you got to dive into the sport at some point. And because if you don't, uh, it, who's to say a sport coach doesn't pick up easy strength. And then all of a sudden they're the best strength coach because they're mixing in the skill and then buy, you know, your, your, your sprint book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go plug that. Books. Yeah, go ahead and plug that one. Yeah, plug yeah. that plug. You know, you buy those two books if you're a sport coach, and next thing you know, you probably know more than the strength coach. You know, I I do think that I've 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 definitely been thinking about just the power of if you are a sport coach and you just learn extreme isometrics and like you said, easy strength, something that's very simple. There is a lot of power in that. There is a lot of power in that, and so yeah. I. I I also, sorry, I also like, I was just thinking you said football strength coaches and, and, you know, and I, and talking to football strength coaches and Scott Sawwasser was on recently. It's like, and he was an ex football player. Like, man, Scott, you know, so much about the game. Like they're sitting on the sidelines, looking at the plays, like they're at every practice. They're, you know, trying to set up their agility and perception reaction work to match eventually what is going to be needed. Yep. Like this, it is getting closer and closer together and you can't deny that. And I think that's, yeah, like you said, it's really important to really get, you, you better get well-versed in those skills. And, and, and then I think on the other layer down, how the human body moves and, and works and how joints move. It's, 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 uh, I don't think it's going to be enough to just live in barbells only like, you know, just putting right. up one rep maxes and yeah, man. Um, shoot. I think that's what? about the questions that we have time for. Uh, well, okay. we probably got about three other podcasts worth, but hopefully we covered at least some of the main topics. I at least had these topics laid out. I think we could hit about at least one or two in every uh, bucket, so to speak. So, uh, man, it was good doing this, Corey. Yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to look at the rest of those questions some other time. We didn't even get to the, what kind of shoe would you make one, but you know, we'll, we'll brainstorm, we'll brainstorm on that. We'll, we'll brainstorm. Sounds like a plan, Joel. I appreciate you, brother.
Yeah, appreciate you, Corey. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to another show. Appreciate you guys being here and, and being a part of this podcast. If you enjoy what we're doing, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to the show on. Also, want to give a last shout out to our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high end training technology, uh, amazing blog, and amazing store as well. So be, uh, so be sure to support them as they've been a longtime supporter of this show. All right, we'll see you guys next week. Have a good one.